So I, I mentioned this in email earlier in the week, but you know, I have said before that as we go through books of the Bible, one thing that I am convinced that the Lord does for us is He always has us in the place we need to be at the right time. And months ago, when we laid out First Peter, and we laid out all the sermons and where they would fall, and we set the preaching schedule for this series, it, it fell that beginning in August, we would get to the part of First Peter that really focuses on suffering on going through trials well. And I think it is very clear that God has purposed that for us. Many in the day that Peter wrote were suffering. They were trying to live good lives, good lives for Jesus. And some of them were going through trials in spite of the fact that they were trying to live good lives. And that was probably frustrating to them. I'm trying to live right. Why are these things continuing to happen? Some of them in the day of Peter were actually suffering because they were living good lives. That, that being holy, living in a righteous way was the reason that they were suffering. In the last two weeks, many people in our church have been experiencing a time of great trial. Some people have gotten sick. We have one member of our faith family that's in the hospital. Others have become afraid of being sick. That fear is on them. I have heard of difficulties people have been having at work, frustrations with things happening in our culture, struggles in relationships, multiple people dealing with some type of a downturn in their parents' health. And just general uneasiness, even anxiety. We're a family here. We embrace people as our family, and we have many in our family that is that are hurting. And it is my hope that one of the things we take comfort in is that God has prepared us for this. That He has ensured, because of His love for us, that we would hear Him speaking from His Word from the right place at just the right time. And that we would hear Him speak and that we would get through this together. Not just scraping by, but being joyful, enduring, and even having an abundance together in times of difficulty. That is my prayer for us today. So as we look at the beginning of chapter 4, we've actually been talking about suffering well the last couple of weeks. And we have a couple of weeks left in talking about this from Peter's letter. And really it goes back to verse 12 in chapter 3, where he begins to tell the people of God, suffer well if the Lord has willed you to go through a difficult time then while you're suffering, do it well. God's eyes are on you. He is listening to your prayers. And keep looking at Jesus, because Jesus is your example. We don't serve a far-off God who doesn't understand what it means to go through suffering and need to do it well. But we suffer a God who suffered on our behalf. 
Jesus suffered in God's will that He might bring many people to God. And so Peter keeps coming back to this idea over and over, and he's done so again today. If you have one of the outlines, if you printed them out at home, or if you have one here in the building, let's start with this life truth in your handout if you're a note taker. To live as Christ lived, which is what I think Peter is pushing us toward, to live as Christ lived, including suffering well for the glory of God and the salvation of others, this requires not behavior modification, but rather transformation of our mind. I'll say it again. If we're going to live as Christ lived, which includes suffering well when God wills it, for His glory and to bring others to Him. If we're going to do that, it is going to require of us not that we have behavior modification, but that we actually have a transformation of our mind. So I want you to see what Peter said there in the very first verse of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. When I say that, in order for us to be obedient to that verse, in order for us to be obedient to what Peter's been saying for a couple of weeks now, which is suffer well, I'm not saying that in order to live that way, to live as Christ lived, that you aren't going to have to exert your will. I'm not saying that you're not going to have to try to obey, because you will. To obey and be like Jesus means you have to try. You have to exert yourself. But what I am saying to you in this life truth is that the primary way that we see the life of Jesus manifested in us and in our own life is not simply by altering our behavior. You're not going to see the fullness of Jesus in your life simply by making a list of things that you need to do better or things that you need to stay away from. In order to really see the life of Jesus coming through your life, the key is you're literally going to have to have your mind changed divinely. And I think that's what Peter is saying here when he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is a reminder back to verse 18 in chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then he says, since Christ has done this, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, you now, church, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You and I act out of our heart and our mind. We don't act randomly. We sometimes think we do, but we don't. What we do comes from what's in us. And it comes from how we think. We act on what we think. We act on how we think. And so Peter is calling us to think about our lives, and in particular to think about how to go through suffering the way Jesus did. That we need to have that mind, because that's what we're going to act out of. If we think the way we want to think, we won't be like Jesus, no matter how much we try to alter our behavior. We need a mind like Christ. And what we see from Jesus is an approach to suffering that says, while I don't 
necessarily want this cup as he prayed in the garden, Father, if this cup could pass from me, let it. Well, I don't particularly want this cup, Father, if you're giving it to me, let me use this time to draw close to you. Let me use this time to obey you. Let me use this time to maybe even bring people to know you. That was the attitude of Jesus. So, we face suffering every single day. We're in a, a season where it's, it's very pronounced in a particular way with illness in the world. But, even if that wasn't there, we face suffering every day. Maybe it's, I'm trying to do good, but my spouse is going through something really, really difficult, and I don't know even how to begin to address that. I don't know how to address how they're acting toward me or toward others. Maybe it's, I'm trying to do good, but my boss is not fair to me. No matter what I do, my work life and career just doesn't seem to get better. Or maybe it's my business. I'm trying to do good, but my business is struggling. Maybe it's, I'm trying to do good, but my family is sick. Or I'm trying to do good, but I am overcome and overwhelmed with fear that I'm going to get sick. Every one of us, if I was to make this statement, I'm trying to do good, but I feel like my life is in turmoil because of blank. At some point in our week, every one of us could fill in something in that blank. I'm trying to do good, God, but I just feel like this whole day, this whole week is in upheaval because this. And what Peter is saying is, arm yourselves. When that happens, when you get to that time of difficulty, and your life feels like it's in turmoil because of whatever you would put in that blank, arm yourselves with the same type of thinking that Jesus had. This is wartime language. If someone says, arm yourself, in your mind you should immediately think, oh, there's danger, I need to get ready. Arm myself. Prepare myself. Not just get your mind on Jesus, but Peter is calling you to let Jesus have your mind. Let Him transform how you think. If you want to turn there, you can, but this is really evident in Paul's writing to the church in Rome. In Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul gives a command to the people of God. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world, church. In other words, don't fashion your life or let your life be fashioned by the pattern of the world around you. Either don't, don't do it intentionally or don't just mindlessly follow what everyone else is doing. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't just do it because others are doing. Don't get caught up in it. And then he gives the, the how. That was the command. Don't be conformed to the world. But then he gives us the command in the rest of the verse. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't fashion your life after the pattern of the world. But instead, pattern your life after something far greater. And how do you do that? Let your life be completely transformed by the renewal of your mind, by changing how you think. The word transform there, it, it means spiritual transformation. 
Let your life be totally changed. How? By the renewal of your mind. The word renewal literally means renovation. If you've ever been a part of a renovation or you've ever seen one, renovating something is going in and you tear out all the old so that there is room for something brand new. Hopefully, I mean, there's whole television programs and channels that have made millions of dollars off of people wanting to see a renovation of a home, and they don't want it to look any different than it, than it used to look. They want it to be completely different at the end. That's why they do these big reveals at the end of those shows. This is the language that Paul uses for our lives. Let your mind be so renovated that your life looks nothing like the world. The key to living as Christ did is to arm yourself, to equip your life with His thinking. It's not just by developing new habits. If you think that you are going to be able to live as Christ did just by developing new habits, that's religion. It's the idea that you can do enough good works to be like Christ. What we're talking about is the gospel. Let your mind be renovated by God. And while it's not the point of the sermon today, I'll just say that the Bible shows us in other places, like Ephesians chapter 4, that that renewal, that renovation happens by learning from Jesus. Hearing His Word preached and taught, reading His Word and learning it yourself, praying His Word back to Him, meditating on His Word, journaling about it, so that you can get His Word inside of you. And that is what transforms your life, because that's what renews renews your mind. And I think that's what Peter is saying here. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Let your life be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By drawing closer to Jesus and learning from Him. And then he says something very interesting. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, on the surface, that statement, if we just took it out of context, is not true. Because there are many people who have suffered and they still sin. Furthermore, Scripture actually teaches us that it is not it is not possible to entirely cease sinning in this life. Although we should grow in holiness, but we're going to struggle with sin. John actually says in one of his letters that if you say you have no sin, you're lying. So confess your sins to the Lord. So what does Peter mean when he says whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? What does he mean by that? Here's what I think he means. Suffering always involves loss. No matter what kind of suffering you face. If you're suffering, there it, it is involved, it involves you losing something. Maybe you lose your security, your comfort, your reputation, health, resources. Maybe it's just that you lose the ability to do things the way you want to do them. But suffering always involves some type of minor temporary pain or some type of extended pain because it means you've got to give something up. And what I think Peter is saying here is that people 
who have counted the cost of following Jesus. People who have said, I know that if I follow Christ, I'm going to suffer at times in God's will, even in ways that the world's not suffering. I think Peter's saying that people who have, who, who know that and they have counted that cost and they have said, but no matter what, I'm not going to shrink back from God. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to try to have the mind of Christ. I'm going to obey Him. Even if it means that I can't do what I want to do all the time. Even if it means I'm going to suffer some kind of loss. I'm going to follow God. I think what Peter is saying is that is evidence that you have been saved. That is evidence that you have made a clear and clean cut from sin. You have ceased a pattern of life that is sinful. Because you have chosen to suffer as Christ did. In your outline, further explaining this, I think suffering well is a work that comes from faith. And it strengthens us to be more fruitful disciples. I think what Peter is saying is that suffering well is a work that comes from faith and strengthens you to be a more fruitful disciple. You don't have to turn there, but I have pointed to you many times in this church to Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the four soils. And I've even said to you before that I think it is, based on Jesus' word, the most important parable that he ever told. And I actually think that every believer should study well the parable of the four soils and the explanation of it in Mark 4 because it shows so much about life. But in that parable of the four soils, Jesus says that there are four types of human hearts. And he equates those four types of human hearts to four different types of soil. And then he says that the word of God is like a seed being thrown out. And every time the Word of God goes out in reading and preaching and sharing and um, listening, whatever it may be, every time the Word of God goes out, it falls on one of these four types of hearts or one of these four types of soil. Three of them are unfruitful. Nothing ultimately is produced out of it. One is very fruitful. And one of those three unfruitful hearts is called rocky ground. And Jesus, when he explained the parable, he said, rocky ground, that is people who hear God's word and their immediate response is, yes, that's what I want. He says they receive it with joy. They come down, they speak to someone, they pray at an altar. They make a decision in their seats. They say, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. And they do that with joy. They go tell other people that that's what they're going to do. But then Jesus says, what happens is eventually a trial comes. A persecution comes on behalf of the word. In other words, at some point, the cost of following Jesus is made real to them. It's going to cost me something if I do this. And Jesus says they, they shrink away. They fall away. They fall away because following Him was going to cause them to suffer and it was going to be hard. 
and they were going to have to transform away from the pattern of life they were used to. And therefore, they didn't want to follow Jesus. The disciples who are good soil, they know sometimes they're going to suffer even though they do good. Disciples who are good soil know sometimes they're going to suffer because they're doing good. But they still follow Jesus. They arm themselves with His way of thinking. They're going to take the loss. They're going to suffer well. Because they know God has brought them to that place. And God's going to take care of them. And what I think Peter is telling us is that disciples who do that, that kind of obedience is going to lead to much fruit because they have ceased from the power of sin. They have cut themselves off from their old way of life. That old way of life no longer has power over them. Because I keep using this term, suffer well, I just want to pause for a moment in your outline. I want to remind you some of the ways that Peter has described what it looks like to suffer well. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these. We're just going to walk through them. I just want to remind us what it looks like, according to Peter, to suffer well. Number one, you will keep your honorable conduct even when you're slandered. Chapter 2, verse 12. You will still behave well in front of a world that is slandering you. That is suffering well. Number two, you are submissive even to those who are unjust. Chapter 2, verse 18. We've talked about many times. It doesn't mean that you submit to sin. You never do that. But there are times where you will submit to someone who is unjust and unfair. But you will do so because you are suffering well for the glory of God. Just like Jesus did. You entrust yourself to God and do good, even when you're suffering. You give yourself over to God. You entrust your soul to Him, and you keep doing good. Chapter 2, verse 23, and then we're going to read it again in verse 19 in chapter 4. And suffering well means you don't repay evil for evil, but rather you bless people. Chapter 3, verse 9. Someone's evil to you, you don't pay them evil back. Rather, you ask, how could I bless this person? That is suffering well, according to Peter. And then finally, what he's going to introduce to us today. Suffering well means you are holy, even if it results in earthly pain. That you are willing to live holy lives, even if it results in some type of earthly loss. And that's really the focus of the rest of this writing today that we're looking at from chapter 4. I want to remind you of how I always tell you how I always define holiness. I always tell you that holiness involves two things. One, being separated from something, and two, being dedicated to something. Holiness is being separated from that which is common and worldly and sinful so that you can be dedicated to the glory of God and to the cause of Jesus. Those two things together... It's what holiness is. And suffering has an impact on our personal holiness, I think, in two ways. One, suffering can actually reveal to you how well you are doing in living a holy life. 
It can actually show you that. One of the benefits of a trial, one of the benefits of going through difficulty, is that it often reveals to you things that you would not have seen otherwise. There are certain things about yourself that you only see when you're pressured, when you get stressed, when someone comes at you. There are some things that you won't see unless you're put in a situation where you have to react to someone who is harming you or to a situation that is not agreeable to you. And so one of the benefits of going through a trial, and that trial may be having to deal with a difficult person at the store, (laughs) or it may be having to go through a season of a spouse who's going through a difficult time. Whatever it may be, Going through difficulty gives you a chance to see those things about your life. It gives you a chance to see how much of your mind is like Jesus. And it gives you a chance to gauge your personal holiness. In your outline, the pattern by which you act or react in times of difficulty offers a glimpse into your life, into what directs your thinking. The pattern by which you act or react in times of difficulty, offers you a glimpse into what is directing your thinking, your life. Circle pattern there because I want you to understand, I don't mean like a one-time trip up. Someone comes at you and they do something evil and your response is to do something evil to them back. But maybe you confess that, you repent of it, you move on. I'm asking, what is the pattern of your life? Is that a one-off instance, or is it every time someone attacks you, you attack back? Every time you face someone that you really don't want to have to face, every time you're around a difficult personality or person, every time your boss is unfair to you, every time you face a hard circumstance, you doubt God, you pull away, What pattern do you see in your life? The pattern by which you act or react in times of difficulty gives you a glimpse into your thinking. Trials brings to the surface what's truly inside of you. You might not see that in times of prosperity. I wish we could. I wish it was, man, I really learned the most about myself when I get a week at the beach on vacation. That's when I really learn about who I am. I don't think that's how that works. I think we really learn about ourselves when we go through trouble. We may think we have the mind of Jesus. We may think we're living holy lives and then something happens or we get faced with a difficult person. We feel threatened. We feel like we're treated unfairly. And then we see what's leading our lives. And Peter compares two ways that you might be led. He says in verse 2 that the point of salvation and ceasing from sin and being willing to suffer and have the mind of Jesus is so you can live the rest of your life in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So I think there's two ways in which we are led. One is we are led by the Spirit of Christ. 
which is that transformed mind and holy lives where we are being led by the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ leads us to worship God, always to want to please God. That was the rest of that Romans chapter 12, verse 2 verse, by the way. We looked at a moment ago. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The rest of that verse was, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So you may know how to please Him. In any situation, let your mind be renewed so you know how to please God. Because you're led by the Spirit of Christ. And that's what Peter's saying here. Arm yourself thinking the way Jesus did so you can live the rest of your life for the will of God. Live holy lives. And suffering lets you have a a peek into who's leading you. The other way you could be led is the will of the flesh. Peter says in verse 3, you can look around at the world and you can see all that they're doing. Living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And Peter says, church, be done with that. Be done with all of those things. The time to do those things is over in your life because you're a believer. Don't give any room for that. Don't even leave room in your mind to think, okay, I'm going to live a 99% good life to God, but I'm going to keep this one little thing of my old life, I'm going to keep that in my life. I'm going to give myself this one thing that I can do to remind myself of the old days. I'm going to give myself one week a year or one day a month to kind of live that old life. Peter says, don't do that. Like, that time's done with all of the time that you had that it's over you've ceased from that put it out of your life he uses a term there to describe that type of life as lawless idolatry sin is so pervasive that lawless idolatry it's not talking about god's law there's no need to put that because idolatry is always breaking god's law He's talking about worldly laws. He's saying that you may become so infected by sin that even the world looks at you and says, that's wrong. That's illegal. And he says it's because of idolatry. Because the will of the flesh always leads you to worship yourself. Idolatry is misplaced worship. It's living for yourself with yourself at the center of your life. And so suffering lets you see what you might not see. Suffering lets you see what's directing my thoughts. Ask yourself, how do I escape trials? When I feel stressed, when I feel pressured, when I feel the world is coming in on me, what do I do to escape that? I'm not telling you it's wrong to have a hobby. I'm not telling you it's wrong to take a walk or to want a vacation. I'm not. But what is the pattern of your life of what you want to run to anytime you feel a trial? Are you led by the Spirit of Christ or the will of the flesh? How do I react to evil? How do I react to danger? How do I react to someone who maligns me? Am I being led by the Spirit of Jesus or am I being led by my own flesh? Suffering can reveal that to you. It can reveal your personal holiness. And at the same time, Peter says, the other side of the coin is there may be times where you actually suffer because you're trying to live a holy life. 
So look at verse 4. With respect to this, and he's talking about with respect to these lives of lawless idolatry, the unsaved are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So in your notes, beginning a gospel plea, church, beware the temptation that comes from man that may include ridicule and criticism. Beware the temptation that comes from man that may include ridicule and criticism. Here's what Peter says. There are times where you're not going to join in something that someone else thinks you should join them in. You're not going to do something that someone else wants you to do with them, and the reason you're going to refrain from it is because you know it's not godly. And that's going to surprise them. And they might criticize you for it. They might ridicule you for it. They might abuse you for it. You're trying to be holy... And they threaten you because of it. You may not even speak against it. It may not be that you say, hey, listen, I just, I just want you to know that like the reason I can't go to this place or I can't do this thing or I can't join you is because I think it's sinful. Now, you might do that, but it might be that you just say, you know what? I'm going to silently withdraw. I'm not going to participate, and I'm just going to be quiet about it. But even then, because they're, they're, they can't figure that out, why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you do what we're doing? Why wouldn't you agree that this is okay to do the way we think it's okay to do? And they're going to interpret your silence as condemnation, and you're still going to be criticized for it. This is happening to the church in our world today. Even if the church doesn't say directly, this is wrong, the world wants the church to say, this is right. And if the church is unwilling to say, this is okay, the church is maligned for that. Peter said, that's going to happen. That's the cost of following Jesus. You might suffer because you don't follow what they follow. But look at what he says. But, church, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here's what Peter says. Remember the judgment of God in your outline. Remember the judgment of God. The first thing Peter says is when you find yourself in that place to where you're being maligned and criticized because you don't join the world in some sin or you don't say some sin is okay. When that happens, I want you to remember that God stands ready to judge. In this life and in the life to come, you don't escape judgment through death. People will be judged, so don't join them. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to suffer well. Have the same mind Jesus has. Because God is ready to judge the living and the dead. Let me just say this. 
about being ready to judge, that language indicates it could be imminent. I don't know if it's in this room. I don't know if it's on this replay, or I don't know if it's someone watching this maybe on our website two years from now. But let me just say, if you are in a lifestyle of sin, if you are in a pattern of sin, if you are in a lifestyle and a pattern of sin that's hidden from the world, or if everyone can see it, this may be God's warning to you. Judgment is always imminent. I've said this to us before, but when we are doing things that are wrong, and we don't immediately see God's judgment, we're not living in His approval, we're living in His patience. He's giving us chances to repent. But His decision of when He will judge could be at any moment. So this is a warning to Christians to stay holy even if you suffer. It is warning for Christians to turn from their sin if they have secret hidden sin in their life. It is a warning to those who are lost. And it is an exhortation to us. Because I want you to see what Peter says next. What should you and I do in light of this impending judgment? In light of the reality that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says in verse 6, For this is why, let me pause, when he says, For this is why, he is talking about the previous verse, that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. He is absolutely a God of love. He is absolutely a God who loves the world. Sent His Son to die for the world. But He is a just and holy God who will judge sin. And He is ready to judge the living and the dead. So what happens because of that? Verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached. Even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let me just say that Peter is not saying there is an opportunity after you die to hear the gospel preached and be saved. There are some religions that teach that. That is wrong. As a matter of fact, it would completely go against his argument of the urgency of preaching the gospel. It would go completely against his argument of the urgency to live holy lives. If you're going to have an opportunity to hear the gospel preached after you're dead, then why live a holy life before you die? Peter is talking about that the gospel has been preached. The gospel is being preached in the world. And there were people who have died. And they died in part because of judgment, because part of the judgment of sin on the earth is death. So everyone, apart from the second coming of Jesus, will face that death at some point. But the gospel was preached even to the ones who've already died before they died. When they were alive, they heard the gospel preached. And the reason for that is because God gives an opportunity that we might live with Him. We might be with Him in the Spirit and one day have resurrected bodies and live forever. And so, 
I believe what we can take from this in a gospel plea is that judgment of death comes to all because of sin, but there is hope for eternal life. If you're an unbeliever, believe Jesus and repent. If you're a believer, preach the gospel. The reality that Jesus is ready to judge the world doesn't make Christians stand back and say, yes, judgment's coming. It makes us step back and say, I've got to preach the gospel. Because judgment is imminent. It's imminent. God can judge any moment. So I need to preach. I need to share. I need to tell people about Jesus. In your outline, we preach the gospel. That's the response. We do that by imploring people. That's your first outline, first blank there. Implore. We preach the gospel by imploring people. I get that term from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That word, the closest word we have to it is beg. I beg you, come to Jesus. I beg you to believe the gospel. Because the judge is at the door. Judgment is imminent. I implore you, be reconciled to God through Jesus. Sometimes imploring may include warning people with tears. Sometimes this may include warning people with tears. When we implore people to come to Jesus, that's often going to be involving a warning about judgment. But church, I think our warnings should always be with tears. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they wouldn't listen. If you and I are warning of judgment, it should not be in arrogance. It should not be in scorn. It should not be in anger. It should be in tears. Bear with me for a moment. Every person you encounter, in person, on the internet, social media, every person you encounter is a soul that is headed to an internal destination. Life with God or life apart from God in suffering. Every person. Church, I think we are getting wrapped up in the wrong battles. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's not right and wrong in the world. I'm not saying there are some viewpoints that are not better than others or more wise than others. But conservatives are not your enemy. Liberals are not your enemy. Those who think you should get a vaccine 
are not your enemy. Those who think you shouldn't get a vaccine and you should not listen to people who are saying you should, they are not your enemies. People who think different, differently politically than you do are not your enemies. People who think differently about the pandemic than you do are not your enemies. Sin, Satan, and death are your enemies. And judgment is imminent. And every person you encounter is a soul who's going somewhere. I know there are people who think I should speak more into political wars. And I do think there's a place for believers to have a voice in that. I think God deems some people to work in that avenue, in that realm, to help. He tells us, seek the good of the place that I've sent you, because in its good, you'll find your own good. But here's what I see. Here's what I see. I see that we're getting distracted from what matters. I see that we're spending our primary energy and time and resources and thoughts on how to fight temporary earthly battles at the hope of avoiding suffering. Because if these people get their way, then I'm going to suffer. If these people get their way, I'm going to suffer. And what I'm saying to us is we're ignoring the real war. And people are dying and going to hell. And we're the ones who are supposed to be begging them to come to Jesus. We are not called to try to bring people to our way of thinking. We are trying to bring people to Jesus' way of thinking. They don't need to have our mind. They need to have His mind. In this opening passage we read this morning, in verse 18 in Psalm 31, the prayer is, Let lying lips that arrogantly speak against the righteous in proud contempt be silenced. Yes to that prayer. But in a New Testament sense, I believe the, the primary way we're supposed to hope that those lying lips are silenced is because they come to know the gospel and they begin to praise and worship Jesus. God, what I am laying before us is preach the gospel. It's not just for a pastor to do. Implore people in your life. Implore people you encounter, come to Christ. Don't shrink back. I know we're frustrated right now. I know people are scared, but we cannot shrink back. We cannot shrink back from each other. We cannot shrink back from God. We cannot shrink back from the church. We cannot shrink back from our mission. That is exactly what the enemy wants us to do. And we can't get focused on the wrong things and the wrong battles. We can't go into hiding and we can't fight the wrong wars. We have been given a spirit of power and love and sound judgment. Preach the gospel. You might suffer for it. You might lose friends for it. But let it be said of you 
that you implored people to come to Christ. Two more. Let me encourage you to strategize how to bring people to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul said, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't mean that he became a sinner to bring people to the gospel. But he does mean that in the way that he could identify with people in order that he might save some of them, he will. Who's in your life? What do you need to learn to love and learn to do and learn to talk about that you might have an open door to bring somebody to Jesus? Preaching the gospel isn't just waiting for that moment to come and, oh, I can share Jesus with this person I bumped into. We should do that, but it's also strategy. How do you reach your family? How do you reach your neighborhood? How do you reach your community? How do you reach the people in your life? Strategize about that. How do you use the resources God has given you to reach people for Jesus? And then secondly, or thirdly, we implore, we strategize, and we serve. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32 and 33 says, Give no offense. I give no offense. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. Paul says some pretty radical things about evangelism. He says, if I can avoid offending someone, I will. Unfortunately, I think there are many under the banner of Christianity right now that, that really enjoy seeing how they can offend people. Paul says, I don't, I don't, I don't offend anybody if I don't have to. Now the gospel is going to offend some. Don't shrink back from that. But I don't offend if I don't have to. I try to please everyone in everything I do. But I don't do it so I can have an advantage. I don't do that so I can grow and have a lot in the earth. I do it so that I might see people saved. That many of the people that I'm serving might be saved. Eli, you guys can come up. Church, the key to living as Christ lived is to think like Jesus thought. To have the mind of Christ. Let your life be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you are willing to count the cost and follow Jesus, even though you're going to suffer because of it, it's evidence that you have ceased from sin, from the power of sin. Suffer well. Sometimes in your suffering, you'll be able to see whether or not you're living a holy life. Look at that. Think about it. Repent where you need to. Sometimes you try to live a holy life, you're going to suffer. It's okay. God is with you. The judge is at the door. He is ready to judge. The reality is there are people today, probably before I finish this sentence, somewhere in the world, they're going to enter into God's judgment. It's happening all around us every day. And we are called to care about it. We are called to weep over it. And we are called to share the gospel. Don't get lost in the wrong battles. If you have a way to invest yourself and make things better in the place that God has planted you, even civic responsibilities, do it. Praise God for that. 
Don't get lost in the wrong wars. Don't spend your time and your energies trying to convince someone to think about you, to think like you do, about some temporary earthly thing. Be focused on trying to beg people to come to think like Jesus does. Implore them, strategize, and serve. Let's not shrink back, church. We can't. We can't. We can't shrink back. We've got to press forward. We have a mission. Agape has a mission. Every church has a mission. We can't pull from each other. Use sound judgment. But don't be afraid. Press forward. Preach the gospel. The enemy would love for us to go into hiding and be silent while people die. It's not for us to do. Father, this morning I ask that you would build our life as we're about to sing. Build us up in the gospel. Build us up in Jesus. Help us to not focus on the wrong things, but on the right things. Would you please give this church the mind of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and sound judgment and love and power? Would you please help us? Please. Help us to not shrink back. Help us to not get in battled in the wrong wars. Give us a heart for the lost. Let us see revival. Let us see people going and turning from idols and lawless idolatry and coming to know Jesus. Let there be holiness in this church. Even if it costs us something, let there be holiness here. God, be gentle with us. And when we walk through trials, see us through those trials. And please fill this baptistry with people, even in this season, week after week and month after month, who are being saved and coming to follow Christ. This morning, church, I invite you to worship. If you're in your homes watching this, worship. Hear, worship, sing. If you want to come pray, you can pray at the altar where you are. If you want to talk about your relationship with Christ, let me know that. Before you leave today, I'd love to talk to you about where you are with Jesus. If you're on the replay, if you're watching this, you can reach us 205-810-1270. You can text that number. I would love to have a conversation with you about Christ. That'll come to, that'll come to one of our pastors. Let's worship together. Sing from our hearts. Let's God, let God speak to us.